from secular communities, empowered by reason and connected by compassion. This is the Oasis Network Podcast. All right. Um, here's a little bit about June. She's been working on mobilizing people to bring forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on Earth. She has presented and facilitated on related topics for more than 6,000 participants in 26 cities in 16 states and Canada. Her work was included in facilitating more than 60 Awakening the Dreamer, Changing the Dream Symposiums, teaching compassionate communication, also known as nonviolent communication, leading and hosting climate reality leadership core events, facilitating and hosting active hope workshops, also known as the work that reconnects, which is Joanna Macy's work, and catalyzing engagements in Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. She was a contributing writer and assistant editor of the award-winning 2010 edition of the Sustainable World Sourcebook. Let's give a warm oasis of welcome to June Holty. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Hi. Oh, that's nice. I'm used to be closer to people, but we'll get used to this as we go along. So as you heard David reference and the references from our MC, the Kansas City Drawdown Society was co-founded by David and myself, another, another person, and we'll tell you more about that later on. And um, we're excited to be here. I'm really excited to be here and share this with you all. I'm learning how to use this particular clicker. There it is, no. Did I just shut it off? So while somebody helps me with that, what do I do? Click it one more time. There we go. We're gonna move on from there because y'all are already present. Sorry, everybody. We're going to get the hang of this right there. So I want to get a quick check. When you think about your awareness currently about the um, global climate crisis or whether you think of, of it as global warming or um, climate change, when you think about it, I'm going to ask you to just raise your hand if you feel that you're in one of three categories. Are there anybody, pe any people here that really feel like they, they got a handle on it? They really know a lot about it. A couple people, great. And then are there a few people that could know a little but really want to learn more? Yeah, good. And are there a few people that really don't know anything at all and you're too embarrassed to admit it? <laughs> couple, couple brave ones to acknowledge that. When you think about your current level of awareness and what you know about the climate crisis, in your heart of hearts, what's, what do you really feel? I'm looking for just feeling words, not descriptions, not solutions. Popcorn style. What do you really feel? Sad. Disheartened, sad, worried. Grief. Grief. Hopeless. What else? Hopeless. Hopeless. Helpless. Helpless. Yeah. So um, one of our missions, part of our mission is that um, we transform your relationship with the climate crisis in such a way that you will become empowered 
to start wherever you are and take whatever your next actions are. I'm sorry about that. So the three questions really are, must we change, can we change, and will we change? So must we change is um, sort of the bad news of the climate crisis, and so I'm gonna be sharing a little bit that will deepen your awareness, and the idea is that the more you embody the, 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 this historical moment, and the more you actually understand it, it will capacitate you to be engaged from, um, from a knowing place and from a caring place, and, uh, the feelings that we feel about the climate crisis come from a very profound place of love for, for life. And so I encourage you to let yourself feel during this first section, if I can get the clicker. So must we change? I need a little help. There we go. So some of you may know that this character, Chinese character for crisis, is actually contains the character for um, danger and for opportunity. And so we want to be looking for how we can relate to a crisis in a different way than we, that might have us shut down from engaging. I'm so sorry. Here we go. And there's a couple slides that are really wordy, but this is one of my favorite quotes that changed the course of my life. I used to be in the camp of people that, you know, I think it's kind of a, a pathway we're all on. When you first wake up to something, the first thing is like you want to blame someone and you're mad and you're angry. I think it's like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief. And then eventually you start to... Um, reconcile with whatever it is that's going on. So the environmental crisis is an outward manifestation of a crisis of mind and spirit. There could be no greater misconception of its meaning than to believe it to be concerned only with endangered wildlife, human-made ugliness, and pollution. These are part of it. But more importantly, the crisis is concerned with the kind of creatures we are and what we must become in order to survive. That quote, is, I changed my life about 35 years ago. Here we go, if I can. So, um, if you think about, you look up in the sky and everything looks vast. And it seems limitless in a way. But really, the thin blue line in the upper atmosphere is like the skin on an apple. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the upper atmosphere and the effect that these greenhouse gases that we're putting into the atmosphere. So here's, about, I apologize, there's a few, just a, quite a few statistics that we're going to go through right here. Just let yourself feel it and um, deepen your understanding. So carbon dioxide is being released into the atmosphere faster than any time in at least 66 million years. At least 224 locations in the world are experiencing um, record temperatures all around the world. The, and we want to remember as we're going through that really the gravest effects of all of this are suffered by the poorest people. If you have a roof over your head, clothes in a closet, a bed to sleep in, you're better off 
materially than 83% of the people on the planet. So we want to be mindful of that as we're considering um, the impacts of our aggregate choices on the, the global infrastructure of the planet. So here in the Midwest, the temperature's already risen 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit and could rise as much as 9.7 degrees higher by the 20, uh, 2100 if we don't change the course that we're on right now. Can someone help me with this? David, could you do it? I just, uh, it's really distracting. So thank you for trying. Yeah, thanks. So um, this shows the worldwide weather extremes and you saw the patterns. Well, the red is extreme temperatures, droughts and fires. It's from 1980 till 2018. And the blue is floods and mudslides. Gold is storms, and you can see the upward trends as the temperature rises. These climactic events become more extreme. Next slide, thank you. You have to point right at that computer. Thanks, everybody, for your attention and your patience. So these worldwide, uh, we have a few slides here that are going to just illustrate the effects of this um, rise in temperature and all the extreme weather events. You can see economic losses. Just in the last two years, globally has accounted for 653 billion dollars. The good news about that is that um, reinsurance companies and uh, the people that give cities their ratings are now requiring climate planning in order to get rated as a city. So cities will now be downgraded if they don't actually have a climate plan. So the good news is that we're, we're waking up and getting organized. Go ahead, David. Thank you. This illustrates in just one year span with these high temperatures, um, the evaporation that takes place can devastate soil and lakes and waters. Next slide. Hotter years typically have more fires. We're all deeply and profoundly aware of what's happening in Australia. I'm going to cry. You're welcome to cry too. Um, many species could go extinct in Australia just in this one episode of fire. And go ahead, David. This illustrates, again, the dramatic um, consequences of these changes in our climate. In central Russia, in the summer of 2017, some of you may have been aware of the fires in the Amazon, but there were fires in all kinds of other places in the world. In Russia, for example, 29 million acres of forest burned by the middle of 2019 and forced the government to declare a, a state of emergency. Next slide. So uh, from the resulting fires, 55,000 55, people died in Moscow. We didn't really hear about that too much. Go ahead, David. Four months later, world food prices rise to reach record highs because Russia halted grain exports and Ukraine restricted them after these fires. David, go ahead. So then food price index had all-time spikes, two record spikes within three years' time. So if you're a family in the developing countries and you get one meal a day, 
and the food price suddenly triples. You can imagine the consequences it has. Go ahead, David, next slide. This illustrates the food riots that took place as a result of that particular episode and the global food system. Go ahead, David. This man in Syria said he had 400 acres of wheat and now it's desert. Next slide. Go ahead, that's misplaced, go ahead. So in Syria, the drought turned 60% of Syria's fertile land into desert and drove 1.5 million people into Syria's already crowded cities, which um, added combustion to the volatility of the situation that they're facing with. Next slide. So we, we reach a breaking point in the capacity for people to make livelihood and actually have something to eat and a place to live. And this is a picture of the migrants coming from that drought to the European Union. And we all, European Union, and we all have um, familiarity with the um, politics and the, the challenges that they had to face when they came. Next slide, please. Thank you, David. It's relevant here, too, because you can see this shows the dry corridor in North America. Next slide, please. And you can see drought-affected areas in purple in Central America, in Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica. Go ahead, David. And this illustrates what's, what, we're fate, what we're experiencing at the border in Mexico. It's a, it's a crisis in not understanding and a crisis in compassion because those people that are starving because they're, they, don't have, they don't have any food, they're just looking for a place. David, next slide. Of 184 countries on the Global Climate Risk Index, Honduras is number one and Nicaragua is number four. And so we see these consequences of extreme weather events. Go ahead, David. These next two slides illustrate June of 2018. This is Google Maps looking down in El Salvador, in a city in El Salvador. Next slide. This is just two months later. It's desertification has just gripped a lot of these areas. Next slide, please, David. So the main reason people are moving is because they don't have anything to eat. And so we're seeing tremendous climate instability that's radically changing food security in the region. And it's coming all of our way on this planet. Next slide, please, David. A couple examples of these extreme weather examples that some of you may have no awareness of because it doesn't get a lot of coverage here. In June of 2018 in Oman, the highest record overnight low temperature of 108 degrees, 0.7 degrees Fahrenheit. And the town remained um, above, well, we didn't translate that, sorry, for 51 hours at that higher level for 51 hours. Go ahead. Imagine what we'd be doing if we were them. 31% of the Earth's population currently experiences potentially deadly heat 20 plus days per year and click again. By the end of the century, if we don't turn it around, the tropics may experience these conditions nearly year-round, while mid-latitudes could have them 60 days per year. Kansas City's slated to have, imagine having uh, 40, 100-degree days for your grandchildren. Next slide, please. So in the future, the climate 
in large parts of the Middle East and North Africa render some regions uninhabitable, again forcing vast migration. Next slide. The world could see up to one billion climate refugees if we don't turn this around. Very, if you don't remember anything else, remember that number. Next slide, David, thank you. So the Department of Defense is actually on to this. 2014, they had a climate change adaptation roadmap, and they said that climate change is likely going to lead to food and water shortages, pandemic diseases, disputes over refugees and natural resources, and destruction by natural disasters in regions all across the globe. The global systems that are vulnerable to climate are food supply, water, and health. We're going to skip through these next slides because uh, we want to get on to the good news. Go ahead, David. So you can see the effects of water is increased demand and re reduced supply. For water scarcity already affects more than 40% of the world's population. Next slide. This shows the changes in uh, glaciers. Some of you may have never seen this before, but it's very powerful. So click on it one more time and you'll see. Um, this is in the early 20th century, and this is a more pretty recent picture below of the same glacier. And um, uh, scientists have been tracking the, 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 the shrinking of glaciers for many, many years. Go ahead, David. Here in our area of the woods, the current rate of groundwater depletion, 35% of the southern high plains will be unable to support irrigation by 2040. So let's go ahead to the next, skip through these slides, David. It affects our health in all these various ways. It's the biggest health threat of the 21st century, and it affects other species. Um, there's a project called Species uh, Partners, I think it's called, and they discovered that the population of large vertebrates in the ocean has declined shockingly in the oceans. Go ahead, next slide. We now risk losing up to 50% of all land-based species this century. So um, the thing that we don't, we don't yet comprehend is the synergistic effects of all of these um, things that we've been discussing. So. The largest known colony of a t one type of penguin, the peng um, uh, collapsed just this year. 40,000 birds and something like only two survived the, of the hatchlings. And that's because the species, if your species arrives and the, the, the food they're supposed to eat actually came two weeks earlier because it's hot, it's hotter, then they don't have any food to eat as one of the many variables. Okay, so go ahead and skip forward. Um, there are people, I know people, next slide. That, oh, that one, sorry. That I know a woman who's actually a scientist, a, a, a writer who's actually identifying tree species and planting them far enough north that they're going to be able to survive, hopefully. That, that she's actually, that's her work in the world at this point. So can we change? Yes. And that's the good news. And I'm sorry that we don't have quite as much time to tell you about it, but we know that if you know the facts, you're really more apt 
to get in gear. So if we can really understand the problem, the answer will come out of it because the answer is not separate from the problem. There's something about our culture that has us avoid problems and think that, um, oh, we don't want to have that problem. It's Something's wrong if you have a problem. But really, um, the problem is the portal. The, pro- the, the answer, the solution is actually in the problem. No solution ever, ever comes before you identify a problem. So if you conceive of the world that we've been living in where it makes sense for me to have a comfortable, cozy life and not really care about the rest of the world, it doesn't make any sense anymore. We're all waking up. Go ahead. The greatest revolution of our time is in the way that we see the world. People always behave according to how the world occurs to them without exception. People always act according to how the world occurs to them. So the mechanistic paradigm underlying the industrial growth society gives way to the realization that we belong to a living, self-organizing cosmos. General systems theory emerging from the life sciences brings fresh evidence to confirm ancient indigenous teachings. The earth is alive. Mind is pervasive. All beings are our relations. This realization changes everything. We're catching up to what many indigenous people have held on to. It changes our perception of who we are, what we need, how we can trustfully act together for a decent and noble future. Go ahead, David, thank you. The occurring world will really be the, the parameters on the what you see as possible, how you can act. So if the world occurs to you as you're separate from the world and your job in the world is to accumulate things and look good and have fun, then you'll behave that way. But if the world occurs to you as a living being that you're a part of and that you love and that loves you and that you can cooperate with, then you'll behave in an entirely different way. This illustrates that point. We're stuck in a paradigm that has us thinking in this old industrial growth consciousness of the upper left-hand corner. And in fact, there's 200 people in 177 cars. If you put them on three buses or a light rail or even without cars, it's like we all, if we actually join together and bring our creativity in our hearts, we can create the future that David's talking about. Go ahead, David. All change starts with disturbance. So this has pretty significant implications for us as individuals and as a culture. Because when we see disruption around us, the relationship that we have with disruption often starts with resistance or anger or fear. But yet, if that's the doorway into change, developing a relationship in which you can be curious about disruption, What is going on on this planet? The living planet is giving us feedback. Is the climate crisis happening to us or for us? So it sets sets us up for a very different kind of experience. Go ahead, David. So Project Drawdown, I'm going to say in one minute because the clicker wasn't working, and I'm going to take one more minute. um, Paul Hawken was popular. He wrote a book called Growing a Business was made into a PBS documentary. Some of you may know his 
second company, I think it's a second company called Smith & Hawken. Anybody know that garden supply company, Smith & Hawken? He named that company after the teacher that told him he wasn't going to amount to anything. <laughs> Her name was Smith. Um, as he went along, people kept telling him, yeah, but business is destroying the environment. So his next project was called The Ecology of Commerce. On that book tour, he started discovering all around the world, people are working on human rights, indigenous rights, environmental sustainability. It's like the, like the immune system of the planet is waking us up and we don't yet recognize that we're a part of the same movement. And so he hired a staff, wrote a book. They've documented two million organizations around the world and he calls it the largest social movement that the world has ever seen. Fast forward. In 2015, he got a team of people together. They hired research fellows from around the world, 300 plus research fellows and advisors, and they scoured the world to look for the solutions. Again, coming back to what I said, the way the world occurs to you will limit what you see as possible. So the whole, the whole world has been looking at how bad climate change is and how fast and how dangerous and oh my God. Paul said, hmm, has anybody looked for the solutions? And he discovered that people really didn't know. So that's why he got this team together. That's what Project Drawdown is. They mapped, measured, and modeled the top 100 solutions, 80 of them had enough data to model, 20 of them they call um, coming attractions. And so this is a pathway that is evidence-based. I think there might be one slide and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. There, here we go. Everything was ranked according to the number of gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent could be prevented from going up or brought back down through that particular action if it was scaled up over 30 years in a reasonable but aggressive way. And it, they ranked them according to their cost and savings. And so we have a pathway. This is the recipe. This is how to do it. And you can talk to David and I afterward to find out more about it. We have an introduction to draw it, and it's a two-hour presentation in February 13th, if you're interested. Thank you for your time. Sorry for taking a little no, extra. June, you're, you're perfectly fine. Okay, good. We're happy to, we're <laughs> okay, happy to hear, hear all you have to say. So let's give uh, June a round of applause. Thank you. And now, um, Thank you. If, it's, if it's okay for you, June, we always allow time for questions. Oh, good. We're, okay, good. We're a question-having bunch. Um, so I'll walk <laughs> around with the microphone. Please wait for it and make sure that your question is a question and not a treatise. One Thank here, you. two here. Yeah. Do you think that the only way we can really... Uh, solve this problem is to eliminate our current reward system, i.e. capitalism? I mean, yes, yeah. yeah, so I, um, this is a, a six-day conversation, but I actually, I don't, I don't actually concur with everything that's in the drawdown book, and it's not the only way, but it's the first systematized, science-based a body of knowledge that's really creating a splash everywhere. I wanted to tell you that 
one of the people, David changed his whole life when he came to, we're the first drawdown initiative in Kansas City. David, where are you? There you are. He came to the first pilot group that we did a couple years ago, and he rearranged his whole retirement because he discovered this. And we have, we could tell you many, many other stories about people that are um, finding what they are called to do at this moment in time. And yes, it, it, capitalism is, is a dinosaur, and it's a false dichotomy to talk about capitalism and socialism. It's actually what the future will bring is more like that picture of cars. It's like we're all thinking. It's in the. It's all either capitalism or socialism, and that's the discourse and la la la. But really, it's um, it's going to be some kind of hybrid of whatever we invent if we get our butts in gear. So did I answer your question? I don't know. <laughs> Go ahead. All right. So my question is basically to do with conversations you have with people. A lot of people I know don't like to have conversations about this. It stresses them out. It can they feel very negative emotions and like you mentioned a lot of people just want to kind of look the other way. What have you found is best for engaging people on serious issues? like this, but not maybe turning them off from the conversation? Because I've had some experience where people just don't want to talk about it and they just shut the whole conversation completely down. So here's a day-long workshop in, in 30 seconds. The first thing, what's your name? Nathan. Nathan. The first thing is always to connect with your own body and with the person that you're relating to. And if you're not connected, then anything that comes out of your mouth, they'll, t they'll be able to tell. And so if you come from a place that's grounded and connected where you can actually look at them and see how it's impacting them and choose in a compassionate and wise way what you're going to say next. And what you're going to say next might include, now is not that time to say anything more. But might include just say, I hear you. I have a different point of view. Maybe someday we'll dialogue about it. You know, it's like, so part of it is that we as a species are so limited in what we think is possible and what we think is possible for us and what we think is possible for the people that we think are our opponents, our enemies, all of that. And so part of it is that we're in a, you just all saw all those statistics. Like, this does not look good for humanity, seriously. One, what, are, what the hell are we going to do with 1.6 billion refugees? It's not going to be me. It's going to be everyone's grandchildren. And so we have got to start now reinventing, rethinking, reemerging, um, letting go of what doesn't serve us, letting go of trying to win a conversation or give enough information or have the right answer so that somebody will be persuaded. We have to just, your presence and your love and your commitment to the future is what will attract people. And this, the old discourse of us against them, me against you, win, lose, right, wrong, dominate, avoid domination, is what Joanna Macy calls the industrial growth consciousness. It is a moment in human evolution. We could talk about it for six days. But it's a moment when we all were born into a world of language before we could even speak. We were taught 
that's wrong and they're wrong and that's bad and don't do that and you're bad and it's wrong. And, and so we have got to have a whole lot of fun reinventing and recognizing the very being that we're constituted is, is actually circumscribed by capitalism. We think that our feelings are our own. We think that our thoughts are our own. But there's a case that can be made that it really is largely bought and sold until you're skillful enough to actually step away and say, that's not even authentic. It's just me on autopilot trying to win, trying to look good, trying to consume more, trying to get up the corporate ladder, all the stuff that we, we've, you know, we're all up against, you know, how many $800 trillion advertising industry and all of television is a meta-narrative of consumption. It's not on television if it doesn't actually um, have product placement and cultural norms and, and otherizing norms. And so we have to help each other extricate ourselves from this moment of evolution and, and work our butts off and dance our butts off and play music, where's David? Sing our butts off, creating an entirely different way of being that we can't even conceive of right now. That's a long answer. I'm going way over five minutes. Sorry for giving you more than you were asking for. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Hi. Um, so it's very fitting that capitalism is kind of pervasive throughout this discussion. And I think when a lot of us think about going green or being more environmentally friendly, mm -hmm. we think of like recycling and composting and carpooling, and that's wonderful. Um, but I think that it is also part of the conversation that like big business also contributes to all of this. Mm -hmm. So with us living in a largely capitalistic society, do you have any advice on how we can hold big businesses accountable for their impact on the environment? Yes, I have a lot. Again, I could talk to you for six hours. And I just want to say that what I say isn't necessarily David's, doesn't share all of my point of view. So, um, but, so here's the thing, is what I said about we behave according to how the world occurs to us. If you were born in a world of hyper-competition, hyper-masculinity, white supremacy, you know, heterosexism, if you're born into that world, you learn to survive in that world. And we're all starting, we really are waking up that that world is got us. You know, we, it really is a, a social construction of meaning. It's got us. And so on the one hand, we have to be compassionate with ourselves and each other. So I heard one, David Orr from, um, Oberlin University, he's a thought leader in environmental sustainability. He said, you know, the thing about the environmental movement is that we eat our young. You know, as soon as young people come up and they don't say it the right way or they're, you know, then we're like, that, you know, pounce on each other. I do that. Um, but we have to acknowledge that we're all swimming in 100,000 meta-narratives of meaning and culture that we don't even see yet. And that even the capitalists are, they're, that they're born and bred in that. And so the first thing is to, like, to be compassionate with everybody and to recognize that there's an evolutionary sense that you might not agree with this, but it could be made the case that there's an evolutionary 
um, purpose that, that capitalism has served, and we all have freaking comfortable lives because of it. Like I said earlier, if you have a bed, a closet with some clothes, a roof, food in a refrigerator, you are materially better off than 83% of the people on the planet. And um, that's not to look down on those people because those people know how to share. Those people have community rituals that are grounded in the earth. So to be compassionate with ourselves and to find each other. And, you know, there's this wonderful metaphor of what happens inside of a monarch butterfly cocoon. Some, has anybody heard this? That, um, what, what lit, it's from, uh, I learned it from Elizabeth Satoris. She's a conservation biologist. But what happens inside the cocoon is, fun, is, is a metaphor that can serve us and answer your question on some level, is that the old structures of the I mean, we all have heard of the, you know, the metaphor of a butterfly as a new expression that you couldn't foresee and all of that, which is beautiful. But this is different. In the chrysalis, the, the um, caterpillar, actually, the old structures actually start to dissolve. And the remaining structures correctly perceive it as a threat. And so they launch the equivalent of an autoimmune response. And they start attacking the new structures the new structures are called imaginal cells, and the first ones get killed off. But eventually, the imaginal cells find each other, and they start creating something called imaginal buds. And the imaginal buds are strong enough to withstand the, off, the onslaught of the old structures and the autoimmune response. And pretty soon, there's so many imaginal buds that the old structures just dissolve into a nutritive soup that um, serves the new structures. And then that thing comes out, and it, it's magic. And I think it's possible that we could see ourselves as imaginal cells waking up all over the planet. Like I said about Paul Hawken, they documented, you know, t 10 years ago, they documented 2 million organizations. and. Think about all the volunteers and all the, those, those ripple effects. The planet is waking up. And if you, like me, think of the planet as a living being that we're a part of, it's actually waking us up. It's saying, hey, hey, what you're doing isn't working. Hey, hey. We're, and so, um, so we can recognize that the old structures are going to dissolve. And some parts of capitalism might remain in ways that we can't foresee, but people way smarter than me, more studied than me, have ideas about that, and they're all working on it. There's B corporations, and there are, you know, there are thought leaders all over the world that a B corporation is a benefit corporation. It's a rigorous designation that corporations can get because, you know, they have to their supply chain, the way they treat their workers, and so forth. And you all are starting to hear more and more about this. And so we can recognize that we are imaginal cells, and we, it's our obligation to previous generations and other humans that don't have the privilege that we have. It's our obligation to find each other and have fun with each other and make imaginal buds. And, you know, the first city in the world 
that limited corporate power within their jurisdiction was hum in Humboldt County. Um, you can actually research this in California, what's the town, Ukiah. And they actually set a limit on how many multinationals could come into their city. I mean, that, that was like 12, 14, 18 years ago. It's happening all around us, so we're imaginal cells. Let's party, let's make imaginal buds, and let's have study groups, and let's have share recipes. The number four drawdown solution, the number four solution is a plant-rich diet. Not saying you should be vegan or vegetarian, not being prescriptive, but let's find each other and teach each other how to cook. Let's share resources. Let's form housing co-ops. Let's do all the stuff that we know to do. Okay, and the other part of it is that, this is the last thing I'll say, is that um, we will waste our energy. Okay, let me say it this way. Joanna Macy teaches there's three aspects of this great turning. Like right now, what we could call this world that we live in, the great unraveling. And she says there's three dimensions of the great turning. One is holding actions, people that are living in the redwood trees. Can you imagine living in a redwood tree to save a 2,000-year-old living being from being mowed down? Those people are slowing and stopping the damage. And then there are people that are working on systems and structures, people that are working on inventing new earth-honoring structures and systems, but also working in existing systems trying to change people's consciousness. And then the third aspect is um, shifts in consciousness. And so we can recognize which, which part we, we're good at. You know, like um, uh, Miles Davis, I asked him how he learned to play so great, you know, and he said, you do the fundamentals, and 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 then you just wail. You know, and so like my invitation to all of us is to figure out what our fundamentals are. Figure out what nourishes us to let go of what really doesn't matter and become the imaginal buds. And then we can hospice the dying structures rather than fight against them. We can stand and stop them from poisoning more. Very important. But um, we, we don't have to waste our energy, you know, Anyway, enough said. Thank you all for indulging <laughs> thank, me. Thank you. I, you can tell I'm really passionate. Thank you. Thank you so much, June. <laughs> we appreciate your passion uh, for this topic and your depth of knowledge. And I imagine you and uh, David are open for some conversation uh, as soon as our program is over. So at that, we'll invite David back up for his final performance. And I'll remind everyone that this is just a part of the wide range of informational, educational, and motivational speakers we offer most Sundays. So if you appreciate what you've seen and heard, please consider making a donation. As Sarah mentioned, you can go to uh, kcoasis.org and click on Donate at the top of the homepage. And we also will pass around uh, the baskets for cash donations. So with that, let's uh, listen to David for his final performance. Uh, here we go. So, we, our group calls June our vision keeper. <laughs> and uh, for me, the, the most surprising thing about Drawdown to me is that when they ran the numbers, not only were the most impactful solutions ones that nobody would have guessed, um, but they realized 
you run these numbers out, in 30 years, we will start seeing the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere reduce every year, that it actually is possible. And if the adoption rate goes even better, it could be sooner. So uh, one of the things that um, I've started thinking about is how much we're asking people to change, and that's really hard. And I often talk to people just about the solutions, and I don't even have to talk about climate change. But in a way, it is, it is a revolution. So this one is called Count Me In. See, if I'm not angry, not paying attention, I say it's just a waste of time Say if I'm not scared I've got my head in the sand well, I know it looks bad But I'm feeling fine I'm okay with joining your revolution There's only one thing I need for that decision You gotta promise me good music And as long as I can dance You can count me in Count me in Count me in You want me to hold that sign my congresswoman and chant that slogan I'll march if you don't mind me singing we shall overcome and if you don't mind me doing a little token I'm okay with joining your revolution there's only one thing I need that decision you gotta promise me good music and as long as I can dance you can count me in count me in count me in that's it for this episode thanks for listening to the Oasis Network Podcast Across the nation, a new movement is growing, a community movement where people are more important than beliefs, where reality is known through reason, and where meaning comes from making a difference. It's called Oasis, a place for secular individuals and families to learn, celebrate life, find social support, and give back to their community. To find an Oasis gathering in your area, or for information about starting an Oasis, visit www.peoplearemoreimportant.org.